You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 250. Can you believe it? Drew Mosier and Enneagram type is just the beginning. halfway there this is a show where we have honest conversations with ordinary christians about today's christian experience as always i'm your host eric nevins thanks for being here i'm really glad you downloaded there are a lot of podcasts out there you could listen to a million sermons but you found halfway there and i'm glad that you uh are along for this journey it's gonna be a great one today i can't wait if you haven't if you're a regular listener and you like to listen to halfway there uh, there's two things you could do. If you uh, are talking about podcasts with your friends, mention halfway there to them and spread the word. Maybe they'll download an episode or, or 10. That'd be great. Or uh, if you really are invested in the show and you would love to help us keep running, go to halfwaytherepodcast.com, hit that Patreon button, and you can donate on a monthly basis. I'm wearing my uh, one of my swag sh- sweatshirts today. This is actually for Christian Podcasters Association. But uh, we also have a halfway there uh, shirt. If you you know join up at a certain level, we'll send that to you as well. You can check that all out at halfwaytherepodcast.com. Okay, so today our conversation, I'm excited about this because uh, anytime we get a chance to talk about Enneagram, it's always very interesting. And I'm always curious how people got there. We'll get to that and kind of how how uh, his journey with the Lord goes through all of it. Our guest, he's the founder and CEO of Type Trail, an Enneagram-based coaching firm. Uh, he also wrote a book called The Enneagram of Discernment, The Way of Vocation, Wisdom, and Practice. And he's the co-host of an Enneagram podcast called Fathoms. I think that's super cool. Our guest is Dr. Drew Moser. Drew, welcome to Halfway There. Eric, it's so good to be with you. Thanks so much. I'm glad to to have you here. So I gave that kind of brief introduction about who you are and what you're all about here. Tell us a little bit more about um, kind of where, what that means and kind of where God has you right now. Okay. Yeah. Well, again, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Um, so I am recording uh, from the booming metropolis of Upland, Indiana. So it's a small town in rural Indiana, and that's where Taylor University is. And I work at Taylor University. I do some teaching, wear a few hats. Um, and so that's where I kind of live my wife life with my wife and our kids. And uh so I work at Taylor and then I also do quite a bit of this Enneagram work, as you indicated before. So I do some writing and teaching and, and consulting um, and podcasting on, on the Enneagram uh, because I, I found it to be just a really helpful resource and tool for my own um, journey uh, of faith and, and helping uh, others navigate the big questions in life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing that fascinates me about Enneagram as well is that it just, once you figure it out, it just kind of brings a little bit of clarity to who you are and some of the people around you and why you interact the way you do, you know? That's right. Yeah. I love all that. So uh, fascinating. Well, we'll we'll talk more about how that is is good for you. What's your, why do you think Enneagram is so popular at the moment? Like, it just seems like it keeps going. Everybody's into it. (laughs) Yeah, that is an interesting question. I think uh, there are a few theories out there that I have as to why it's so popular. 
I think the really practical theory is that uh, it has surged in popularity thanks to uh, the publication of The Road Back to You by mm. Ian Cron and Suzanne Stabile. Yep. That just kind of blew the doors open, especially in Christian circles, uh, for considering that the Enneagram may have something to say for Christians and could be helpful. Uh, but I also think there's a few other things going on. I think we are in we're in an interesting kind of season in which we are thirsty for an understand better understanding of who we are and who others are. Right. And I think we are in so in so many spaces and places conditioned to uh, maybe demonize or uh, look down upon those who are different than us or who think different than us or who believe differently than us. You know, the polarization of our current age, all those things that we talk about, right? And I think the Enneagram gives us a way maybe to better understand ourselves and kind of what makes us yeah. tick a little bit and how we can better understand others and maybe relate to others better. And because I think while we're conditioned maybe in these patterns of kind of demonizing others who think differently than us. Um, I think deep down, we're not really satisfied with that. And there, there, there is at least some hope that there's another way. And I think the Enneagram at least is one helpful resource in that journey. I love that. I think one, you know, there's a lot of things maybe to criticize about the times that we live in there. There always are with culture, but one of the positives that I see is exactly what you mentioned that, that we're starting to understand ourselves better and that we don't have to be like everyone else, right? Like other people right, have right. other, other ways of being as, which is sort of an Enneagram way of putting it. And, yeah. uh, and that's okay. And so if we can understand that that's how this person relates, I don't necessarily have to do that if it, and if it offends me, I can kind of figure out, okay, is that about me or is that about them? There's a lot of things right. there. And I really think that the culture is moving toward, uh, it's, we're so about authenticity. We're moving toward an authentic, an authentic expression of who we are. Think about how work even, um, you know, you, you used to have to be sort of, it didn't matter how creative you were or how whatever you were, right? Because mm-hmm. if you were going to show up in a coal mine or a factory or, you know, whatever it is, you were even, you know, selling insurance. You had to be a certain way, right? You just had to be. Yeah that whatever they wanted you to be in there, the cog to be the cog in their machine. It ain't that way, man. We're moving toward, you know, forget the gig economy. It's going to be a personal, I heard somebody call it a personal enterprise economy. Oh, interesting. Someday. And that means you have to know who you are. So very yeah. interesting. The world is changing. And I think that's one of the things behind why a Negram is popular because it tells you about who you are. No, I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, you're in Indiana now at the great Taylor university. I had friends who went there, although I went to rival Trinity. I don't know if they're rivals okay. really. I don't know, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, whatever. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I know where it is. What I, did you grow up there? Or where are you from? Where'd you? No, I, I grew up in the, in the Midwest though. So uh, not too far away, but I spent most of my life in central Illinois um, and went to a church that sent a lot of kids to Taylor. So um, I just had people I really looked up to and respect go to Taylor and thought, Hey, that's probably would be a good option for me as well. And so I, I ended up there as a student. So I'm, I'm an alumnus of the institution and, uh, have the opportunity to work here now, which is also a lot of fun. Yeah. That's fantastic. So you grew up in central Illinois. Yeah. What was that like? A lot of cornfields. 
Yes. Oh, surrounded by cornfields <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> for miles and miles. You, you know, know what? There's something just therapeutic about driving through a cornfield, right? Like on a dirt road somewhere. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And I think I'm guessing some of your listeners can resonate with that. Some probably have never experienced that. <laughs> but in there, if you're in the heat of summer and you have your windows down and you're driving through, you know, a small country road, with corn that is taller than you on either side. It is kind of an experience. Yeah, it <laughs> that, is. Every time it's a lot of fun. Every time we go back to Iowa where I grew up, uh, and we drive through the cornfields, like or whatever, even just in the on the interstate, you know, I'm like they just there's something about it that just like like, oh yeah, that's home. That's what that's what it's like. Anyway, okay. So yeah. I was resonating with that. But so you, you said you went to church. So Christian family, what was that? What was that like? Yeah. And when do you remember your own first kind of awareness experiences with God? Hmm. That's a great question. So I, yeah, I, I grew up, uh, with parents who were of the faith devoutly. So, so I, I don't know if there's ever been a time in my life where I didn't go to church, you know, consistently. And I think, let's see. Yeah. First encounters with God, you know, I have these interesting, <laughs> this isn't necessarily an encounter with God, but I think it's, it's an interesting kind of uh, you know, dipping your toes in the water of who God is. I mm-hmm. remember as a small child, um, stepping into a darkened sanctuary, you know, when my parents were at church for a meeting, they were in the fellowship hall or something. And, you know, kids were just running around and trying to occupy themselves. And then, you know, I remember stepping into, uh, the sanctuary and it was dark, which made me a little scared. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, but also I had this sense that I wasn't, I wouldn't put these words to it. I couldn't have put these words to it at the time, but I, with some hindsight, I can see, I had this sense of kind of reverence and awe for something bigger than myself. Right. Yeah. I didn't know how, what to do with that other than I felt pretty small. Right. And uh, there was something out there bigger than myself that we generally called God. Now over time, you know, growing up in the church and growing up in a, um, a family that was devoutly Christian, um, you know, uh, my parents were able to help me unpack, you know, that God that I at least kind of maybe felt or knew was present, but didn't know real well. And, um, you know, and, and so had, had an, you know, I'd say early-ish kind of conversion experience when I was um, a preteen, Right. And with a baptism, because we were at a church that was Anabaptist um, yeah. in its orientation. So uh, a, a believer's baptism, if you know, if your listeners are familiar with that, was a very important kind of step in that journey. And then, um, yeah, and, and then had, so had a, a lot of experiences where, okay, this is who we are. We are, you know, we are people of faith. We're people who go to church. We are identify as Christians. Uh but I do remember at, at even from an early age having those questions about okay, who is this God that we claim to worship, you know, and I have a sense uh, that this God is real and present, but that kind of freaks me out. Yeah. <laughs> also kind of inspires me, right? Yeah. So what did that, where'd that lead you? Yeah. So I, I think it led me to um, a, a few places. One, um, you know, I've always been uh, a bit of a challenging personality. 
So um, never fully content, just accept what, what I might think to be pat answers from others. Okay. (laughs) So so I think I, I always um, had this kind of penchant towards questioning. Okay. Why, why is this? Why Mm -hmm. do we think this? What are, how how are we sure about this? Right. And it was never in a sense that I was um, trying to debunk my own faith, but really uh, I think I was kind of kicking the tires on it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And to see if it was roadworthy for me and also t- to see if, um, yeah, it was kind of a test in some ways, it may be my own fleece <laughs> that I was putting out to try to see if, if all of this that we spend so much time, energy and intention on is real. Um, and so I've always had this kind of push and pull relationship, I think, ever since an early age with my faith, where I feel compelled to you know, Christ and also wanting to challenge maybe our notions of Christ. Cause maybe if we've, maybe we've not thought through them enough, you know? Yeah. You said that that made you have kind of a, a difficult personality, but that's like the last word I would use to describe you. So tell me where did that come from? <laughs> where, where is that? Like, how did that show up? Did that show up in church? Like asking hard questions of the youth pastor or like what that he didn't want to deal with or what was that like? No. And I would say I, I, I wasn't, I don't know that anyone back then would call me all that challenging necessarily, but, um, you meant more like a challenger, like you were like, you're going to ask the questions. Okay. I was like, yeah, yeah. That's not how I describe it. And I think, you know, and I, I, um, did well in school growing up. Um, I, I think I'd consider myself to be somewhat intelligent. And so I think I, in probably in my immaturity would kind of revel in asking the hard questions sure. sometimes of my Sunday school teachers or my youth pastors. Um, That's and, part of growing you know, up. Looking back, yeah, they were very gracious to me and they probably thought, okay, <laughs> not sure what he's trying to do here, but um, they were very loving and kind and gracious to me. And, and so I, I look back very fondly upon my religious upbringing um, for what it was. Um, it was uh, deeply hospitable towards me and um, and, uh, welcoming of my questions, <laughs> you know, yeah. they definitely had answers <laughs> nice. and, but, uh, you know, definitely welcoming of my questions, even at a young age. Yeah. Nice. Okay. All right. So it was more like you were just asking the questions and, and kind of try, trying to get to the deeper meaning. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, much of the time, I think there were probably some times where it's like, I'm going to try to trick you or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, uh, if I'm being honest, I'm going to try to, uh, you know, press you on something that you don't quite have a good answer for. Right. Yeah. So it happened occasionally. Absolutely. So when did you, when would you say that your faith really became your own? Yeah, I I would say probably not until, I mean, it's a tough question because I I really felt that those kind of early forays into, you know, um, responding to an altar call and baptism and some of those things were, were, were really real, real and meaningful to me. Um, and so, uh, you know, my initial answer to your question would be probably when I was later in high school. Um, and so I don't want to diminish those earlier kind of milestones by saying sure, that, but it was not. really in, in high school, I had kind of a period of rebellion. Um, that's really stereotypical probably for a Midwestern kid who, <laughs> right. uh, you know, played sports and, um, you know, and, and had a lot of the 
kind of small town life, you know, that, that can be available to them. And, and so I had, I had my stereotypical rebellion and found that wanting, right. And unsatisfying and, uh, really came in some ways back to the faith, um, later in high school, which is what really ended up leading me to Taylor. Like a, re- a reason that um, I ended up coming to Taylor is because I, I knew I wanted to grow in my faith and felt that Taylor was a good place to do that, right? Not the only place, certainly, um, but it was a good place to do that because I still felt that, hey, my my faith, at least, at least in that season, was really quite young. And, yeah. Um, I yeah. needed I needed some growth and development there. Well, yeah. you were young, right? So that makes I was young. That yes. makes sense. It's okay. Uh <laughs> I'm curious how so like when you talk about like rebelling, like what were you rebelling against and how were you what what kind of what form did that take? And then what brought you back? Yeah. So uh yeah, I I, w- I think I was just rebelling against, you know, really small town. Um I was kind of a, a known as one of the best athletes in town. I also got straight A's and I think I was rebelling against this idea that everyone had me on this pedestal that I didn't want or like necessarily. Well, I I liked it, but also felt a bit like an imposter. And so Uh. I think I wanted to prove that I was the imposter, if I'm being honest, you know, um, that I wasn't as great as everyone thought I was, um, or if they thought I was great, it was for the wrong reasons. You know, there's probably a whole host of things going on. Um, and, uh, yeah. And I, I think, um, also I, I, I think I felt I was more mature than I was at the time and could handle some things that probably I wasn't ready for. So, so yeah. it led to a lot of, um, yeah, just like partying and breaking rules, breaking some laws, you know, nothing <laughs> that I got into serious trouble for, but just stuff that with hindsight is pretty embarrassing, you know? Um, and so what brought me back was, um, I, uh, I, rem- I remember I, I overindulged and had to be brought home to my parents in like the middle of the night. Um, and I distinct, I, I don't remember any of that cause I'd had so much. I don't remember any of it, but I remember oh, wow. waking up that morning, you know, and, um, and the just the shame and guilt that, that I felt for <laughs> what had led me to you know getting into my own bed, <laughs> you know, yeah, um, and I realized, what am I doing? you know this is this is pointless if this is this is not how I want to be living my life, um because the control I thought I had over everything, I realized I had no control, right. And I realized that my my efforts to try to create my own kind of meaningful life and narrative and story were were pathetic. And um, I needed to kind of ground myself into something bigger than myself because I I was uh, mostly concerned for me at the time. And yeah, and so that's what brought me back. And and, and at the time, I uh, had just a really incredible youth pastor who um who really kind of took me under his wing and and just uh, helped me kind of navigate what it looked like to kind of reconsider a faith that was actually meaningful and transformative and not just, um, part of my, a a weekly kind of ritual, you know, that you do with your family. What did that look like for your youth pastor to bring you under his wing? Yeah, I think, um, a few things, uh, I, 
I I think I made the initial. Hmm, I don't remember. I I might have made the initial kind of uh, contact to him, just saying, "Hey, here's what happened. <laughs> uh, here's here's what I've been up to, and yeah. I just need some help." And he was, um, you know, there's some youth. I have friends who had youth pastors in that situation who just they were berated, you know, when they kind of opened up, and that was a really vulnerable place for me to be. And my youth pastor wasn't. Wow. Um, he was, he was really loving and kind and gracious because I, he could tell I was already beating myself up. Right. I didn't need to be punished any further yeah. you know, by him. Uh, I was already feeling pretty terrible about myself. Well, you had that hangover, and so, so that didn't help. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I was feeling terrible in many ways, but, um, yeah, he, he, uh, and he just, he was welcoming me as I am where I was. And I think that was so important for me. And, um, and in a way that was, he, you know, he didn't sacrifice any of his principles or beliefs, but was non-judgmental towards me and just saw my effort to kind of reach out to them, him for what it was, which was a, a bit of a cry for help. Yeah. 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 Which is good. Uh, okay. So I'm curious, you know, sometimes when students have that sort of reaction, they end up being, being leaders. Is that how you became, did, did he kind of, uh, shepherd you in that direction or what, what, what did that, what did that look like? Um, I, I think so. So I, in some ways I was already in some leadership positions. Um, cause you were the guy. Yeah. Yeah, I was, but, uh, I think, he helped me realize that I needed to bring character and integrity to those roles and that they aren't just kind of figurehead positions, mm-hmm. you know, that, um, that the person that I am in those roles needs to be congruent with the person I am in these other areas of life. Um, and I think he modeled that for me more, probably even more so than taught me explicitly about leadership but he just modeled it for me really well yeah, and uh, caused me to, yeah, I think, I think just think that relationship and experience helped me to uh, maybe be a better steward of the leadership positions I already had. Um, and uh, yeah. And just be more uh, authentic uh, in those spaces. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Okay. So then uh, you went to college. What happened after that? Yeah, so I went to college, um, and I was still uh, kind of clinging to the athlete thing, and so uh, started on the baseball team, uh, and then kind of had this bit of an existential crisis. Like I realized I was kind of burnt out on sports and needed a break, but I didn't know who I was apart from those things. So, yeah. Um. So that was really hard, uh, but um, also felt. Uh, at the, around the same time, I felt this call to ministry that was pretty unexpected for me. Um, I had gone in thinking I was going to go into some sort of business, especially like sports related business. Um, just, I thought I love sports. I was an athlete. This makes sense. I should do these things. And, um, felt, you know, this kind of call to ministry that, it, uh, felt, Uh, outside of myself, but also really important to myself and that I needed to obey it. So, um, so I switched my major to the Christian ministries major here and, um, started exploring, okay, what, what does it look like for me to be kind of in ministry? 
where do I feel kind of led to do that? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you went from the, uh, the world that has all the money to the world that has no money. That was, that was, that was a <laughs> smart financial yeah, decision. Yeah. That's, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> very good. Well, okay. So you felt the call to ministry. What, what did that, what was that like for you? Was that, you know, some people have like a, a burning bush and some people just have this sort of gentle tug. Was it, was it one or the other? Yeah, it was more of the gentle tug. Like I don't, I don't remember a burning bush or anything that dramatic. Um, just, I think it was more of a realizing, Hey, I, I'm not sure that the, the things I'm devoting myself to are the things I'm supposed to be devoting myself to. And it doesn't mean that they were bad. Um, just that maybe God had something else in store. Yeah. I didn't resonate with your soul. It sounds like. What's that? It didn't resonate with your soul. Yeah. I think that'd be a good way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I felt like, Oh, Hey, I could do this, but something's off. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and I knew I needed to figure out, uh, something that, that did resonate with my soul more. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, uh, how did that, you know, change your relationship with the Lord or were there any other kind of steps along the way in your relationship with the Lord? Um, yeah, well, I'm sure there were many, I, I think generally speaking, I, I just felt I was in a really encouraging and supportive environment to kind of grow my faith and deepen it um, in my residence hall with my friends. And uh, I think it was just a really good place for me. Um, also, this this is about the same time where I met my now wife. And that was its own kind of journey of exploring faith and deepening my faith and figuring out you know, what it looks like um, to be a, a, a man of integrity and faithfulness. So yeah, um, I think there are a lot of steps along the way. And I, I think I was just more in, in the, the environment I needed to be in at the time. Yeah. So have you ever had a time when God felt far away or like you went through a spiritual desert? Yeah. Um, seminary. <laughs> ah, okay. All right. So did you go to seminary after, right after college? I did. Okay. So yeah. So here's what happened. Um, you know, so I'm a minister major, I'm doing the internships at these churches. Um, uh, you know, and had decided that probably my best first step into full-time ministry was in youth ministry. And, uh, I had interned at a church for two summers and they had uh, offered me a full-time job when I graduated. Oh, this is great. Yeah. Perfect. I, yeah, perfect. I have a job lined up and my, in entering my senior year of college, I was engaged to my now wife. Um, I'd had enough credits where I was basically a part-time student. So I was able to have all sorts of fun <laughs> with, with a lot of, without a lot of the work. Uh -huh. So I thought I've got this made, you know, everything's perfect. And then, uh, so spring of my senior year, I get a call from the senior pastor of the church and the job offer, uh, he withdrew the job offer and not nothing. It wasn't anything I did. Um, it was other kind of circumstances and he just decided he couldn't offer me the job. So I'd lost my job. Right. Yeah. And this was spring. So it was kind of late in the game. And, uh, but I was ready to, you know, we were set to get married right after graduation um, and right, right about the same time when I lost the job offer, um, my wife lost her sister tragically, um, right before the wedding, oh. uh, best friend, you know, our matron of honor in our wedding, uh, 
and you know, it just, so it lost our job. We had this, and it was kind of my first experience somewhat directly with the loss of someone suddenly, right. That who in, in really unexpected and tragic ways. And so it was really disorienting this perfect life that I had set up for myself was crumbling, right? Yeah. My, you know, my newlywed kind of honeymoon phase of marriage that I, I just thought would automatically happen was really difficult because my wife was grieving deeply. Um, and so uh, I ended up, we didn't know what we were going to do, right? I didn't have a job. We were getting married under really difficult circumstances. And I just happened to be walking through this uh, grad school and, you know, grad school fair at Taylor. And uh, this is, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I saw Denver Seminary had a booth and it was this beautiful vista of the mountains. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know what I want to do, but I want to be there. <laughs> and, yes. And so I, I enrolled at Denver Seminary, uh, honestly, as a stall tactic to try to figure out what else to do. Because I liked school. I liked studying. Yeah. I liked my classes that I was in. And I thought, I'll just do that and figure it out. You were good at it, too. Not the, yeah, it was not the ideal way, right, <laughs> to go to seminary. Right. Because it was really hard for uh, my wife and I. It was, it was not your typical kind of uh, first few months of marriage, first few years of marriage. It was really and, – and then also while we were in Denver, my wife's father – was diagnosed with terminal cancer. So we were still kind of reeling from the loss of her sister. Wow. And then we were, um, you know, uh, hundreds of miles away from her family while, uh, you know, her father battled cancer and then eventually um, passed away to it. And it was just, just felt like we couldn't catch a break. It was, and things were just hard, you know? And um, this, this God that I was studying, <laughs> felt far more distant than the books I, you know, that I was reading. That's for sure. Right. Right. And, uh, and I, I had a hard time reconciling, you know, the God that I was studying and reading about with the God of my experience. Um, at the time it was, it was really hard, really hard. Yeah. And that can be the, the really tough thing that kind of brings a, a lot of us to that place, right. When we go, Hey, this is what I'm promised. This is what y'all said, right? About what, yeah. what it's like to follow God. This is what it's actually like. It ain't adding up. So you got you got to tell me what you know what what the deal is. Yeah. Uh, definitely, I can I can relate to that. Um, yeah, that's that's a tough season too to go through with you know with grief. I Man, it sounds like a lot of grief in a short period of time. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It was, and I wasn't equipped to handle, you know, I was, we were just getting started in our marriage. And so I had no idea how to love a grieving wife. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and so it was just, it was hard for both of us. Um, not at all what we expected. That's for sure. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you're having these questions and you're trying to figure out, okay, God, you're not, this isn't exactly what I, it's not what I'm reading, not what I'm experiencing. Did that get better or worse? Um, over time, it got better. Yeah, okay. um, it took a while, though. So, uh, you know, after I finished seminary, um, we moved back to the Midwest to be near our families. 
because you know a lot had happened. So uh, we wanted to be closer to them, uh, which was its own uh, challenge in some ways, but in other ways it was really good. Um, and I think that allowed us to kind of heal up as a family, you know, as a, as a larger family a little yeah. bit. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think it did get better over time. I mean, eventually, I think we realized probably later than we should have that, hey, counseling would probably be good for us. <laughs> you know, we've been through a lot. We should probably talk about it with someone who knows how to help in these matters. And and uh, once we got into counseling, we did some together. We did some uh, counseling sessions individually, and that was really helpful um, and provided a, a lot of kind of healing and a lot of insight into how to move not not move on, but um, grieve well and live well at yeah. the same time, which we didn't know how to do at the time. So. Yeah, you never really move on from grief. You just move through right. grief and you learn to live with it. Yeah, My, my right. friend, um, Jay Holland, uh, said to me, I interviewed him for Podcast Magazine. So friends, if you're not in Podcast Magazine, go go podcastmagazine.com. You can get it. There's a little plug. But he's coming out in the, the, June episode, the June issue. And he said grief, somebody told him grief is like uh, a monster that knocks on your door, right? And if you, you can either, you, can, you have two choices. You can either, um, you know, just keep ignoring it and it'll get louder and more ferocious. Or you can invite it in, let it sit on the couch, eventually it'll get bored and go away. <laughs> Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> like that, like, wow. And that, that totally changed the huh. way that I, that I saw grief, right? You had, you had to learn to befriend it and let it, yeah, let it move through it. Really the yeah. reality is all emotions are like that, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, you're right. And yeah. And I think grief is one that we be- want to just pretend <laughs> yeah. isn't there. Right. Right. Or want it to go away as quickly as possible. So you had, to, it doesn't really work that way. Yeah. You had to deal with it. Yeah. Did did the Lord show up in any kind of way? Like how, how was that? Did that change how you understood him or what was, what was kind of the result there? Um, yeah, definitely the Lord showed up. So, um, you know, and this is true of so many things in life. When you experience something new, you suddenly have eyes to see it everywhere. Right. Um, and that was true for us with our own grief. Like I, I think, uh, I think, God used those experiences to help us see the pain and hurting of others mm. in ways we probably otherwise wouldn't have. Yeah. So, um, suddenly, okay, what was us, you know, and it's been hard, but also there are a lot of people who are really suffering <laughs> and struggling and it ga- gave us some empathy. Certainly for me, gave me some empathy. I otherwise wouldn't have had, um, without these experiences, at least not, um, not as quickly as I did. So it, it helped, it really brought to light some of the things that are going on in our midst and in our world that are really hard and difficult and gave us, um, a desire to, yeah, I want to pray for those things and be involved. So yeah, yeah def- God definitely showed up in many ways. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that does kind of change you, doesn't it? When you when you realize yeah. what that's really like uh, to to go through, and you understand how others are hurting. Um, yeah, good. and in one particular way that I want to mention, um, we read this. Someone gave us this little book um, by it's a philosopher by the name of Nicholas Wolterstorff. Oh yes, um, but he lost a son tragically in a climbing accident, I think, and so he wrote this 
a small little book on grief called Lament for a Son. Yeah. And um, it was so profound for my wife and I, for both of us. Um, and he, he kind of uses this imagery of the morning bench. So like a park bench that people can sit next to one another who are grieving and suffering mm. together. And in this image of sitting with another on the morning bench, and I mean morning, not as in like yeah, time yeah. of day, but of grieving, you know, uh, was just a, a really profound image for us because we could see how others had done that for us. And we also saw how we could do that for others and sit with others in their grief. Um, and, you know, and, and I, and I think in our twenties, I never anticipated, you know, our twenties to be defined by that. Right. But, it, but they were, and I wouldn't uh, wish it on anyone and can't say I would do it over again that way if I had the choice, but I didn't. So, um, there were a lot of good lessons though that came from it and a lot of growth and maturity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think Dr. Gertheis actually uh, recommended that book as oh, well when, yeah. when he was on the show sure. uh, a couple of years ago. It's hard to believe it's been a few years but now, but yeah, absolutely. So, uh, okay. Yeah. Grief will definitely change you. It'll deepen you. It will give you a better understanding of the people around you. I love what you said about, Hey, I helped me experience empathy for others because there's so much, uh, and most of the things that we don't like that other people do is come about because they're in pain. That's how, that's yeah. how it works. So how did you discover Enneagram and what, like, and mm. where, where did that come up for you? Yeah. So, uh, how we were in, uh, after we left the Midwest, so we went back to the Midwest, healed up a bit. And then, uh, we ended up in Vancouver, British Columbia of all places working for a Christian nonprofit. And there we had a staff development exercise in which we went through the Enneagram together to learn our dominant personality types and better understand one another. And I went in classically like skeptical, like, okay, this is going to be a waste of time. These artificial labels are going to be placed on each one of us. And it's not going to be all that helpful. Right. Yep. And, and I walked out of there realizing that I'm a dominant type three, the achiever and felt like, uh, someone had been following me around all my life and knew me in ways in which I uh, didn't think were possible. <laughs> so yes. was, my mind was kind of blown. And I know that's not everyone's experience, but that was mine. And I started to see how this thing was really helpful in naming some things about myself, both that, that were really great and really helpful strengths and gifts that I have, but also some things that I've just been kind of tripping over myself on, you know, over and over again, that I couldn't quite figure out. And the Enneagram helped me put language to it and see it in a different light. And, and so in my work, which is uh, mostly with college students and young adults, but also has expanded into other people who are kind of, like I said, exploring the big questions of life, I found it to be so helpful. <laughs> it's such a helpful resource to help people better understand themselves and others in order to grow and change. And, uh, and so I've been using it ever since that was back in, let's see, 2008, probably. Oh, wow. Yeah. When I first encountered it and been using it ever since. That's before it was cool. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, so then I had to be careful, right? When it, where I talked about it and when, because some people didn't know about it and some people are still suspicious of it, right? But yeah, it certainly wasn't cool back then. I definitely get that. I get that from some folks every time I talk about Enneagram. They're they're a little bit uh a little bit skeptical, a little bit afraid mm-hmm. that I'm going to uh go the devil's way as it were. Yes. Yeah. Do you have an answer for those people? <laughs> uh, I sure do. Yeah, I get those questions quite a bit. Um So here's what I generally say. Is is the Enneagram Christian? No. Is the Enneagram anti-Christian? No. Uh, If you do a Google search of the Enneagram, you will find things that are very congruent with the Christian faith. You will also find some things that are completely opposed to the Christian faith, right? And so the way that I refer to the Enneagram is that it is a tool or a resource that is available to us and there, it is our responsibility to use it faithfully and to steward it well. Ooh, that's if good. If we so choose. Yeah. If we so choose. And we don't have to, right? Right. You don't right. have to use it. It's not, it's not, you know, baked into the Nicene Creed <laughs> that right. you use the Enneagram. Um, and if you find it helpful and congruent with your faith, then by all means, I think use it. I think it could be helpful. Um, and so it, I think you can easily find places where it's misused misapplied uh and dangerously yeah. so and i don't think that that is proof that it uh it shouldn't be used ever right if that's the case you know we should throw our tvs out the we should throw know, our bibles should... out my friend if that's the case <laughs> right. right because there it gets misused a lot right so and yeah so i not... think it's all in how we use it yeah and, absolutely and if we use it in ways that are congruent with our faith. A hundred percent. Yeah. And the church has always faced this. I really think this is a lot of what Paul was getting at with uh, the whole meat sacrifice to idols, you know, thing in in scripture. Hey, if you, you can't eat it in good conscience, don't worry about it. Then that's okay. Right. But don't let anybody else judge you for if you're okay uh, with it. It's a tool. I totally agree Mm -hmm. with that. That's just the way it is. Interesting. Okay. So what's, what's like one Thing that you see people struggle with most that Enneagram really brings out or kind of solves for them? Yeah. So uh, I think what it, it helps us do, what the Enneagram is, is maybe most effective at is it helps us see the ways in which we live our lives kind of in a default setting without really thinking about it. So the way I often illustrate it is for those people who still have a commute to work, right? Um, who live, let's say 20 minutes away, you know, they probably get in their car five mornings a week, drive to the office, and often, and I'd say 99.9% of the time do so without much active thought, right? Right. They're, while they're in the car, they know exactly where they're headed. They're thinking about their kids or their family or their friends or their hobbies or their plans for the weekend, anything, right? Yep. Um, and I think our personality functions in similar ways. I think it helps us kind of navigate our lives in ways that are generally helpful to us. And we don't have to do a ton of thinking, you know, about the, the ways in which we tend to respond to things and feel about things and think about things until those things don't work. Right. Or until 
yeah. uh, the patterns disrupted and we're like, okay, what do we do now? And yeah. I think this is where the Enneagram is helpful because it helps us see, okay, um, we tend to live our lives, you know, with this personality framework at play. And that generally works well for us, no matter what the type is, but sometimes it doesn't. And I think that's where the Enneagram can be really helpful in, in kind of shedding light on that in a way that can help us uh, maybe be a little bit more intentional in our lives and make some changes so we don't keep falling into the same kind of traps. Right. Okay. So give me an example. You said earlier that it helped you kind of find some things that you were tripping over. What's one of those things? Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, as I, I think I said this before, I'm a type three, which yep. is the achiever on the Enneagram. And, um, you know, we type threes are generally known for doing a lot of things and generally doing them well and generally looking good doing it. And that's, as you can imagine, that serves us really well most of the time, <laughs> except, you know, I think uh, I kept bumping up against my own kind of capacities in my life, realize because I would overcommit. Yeah. Uh, because well, I think what's core to the type three is that we are questioning whether or not we are valuable or worthy. And if we are questioning whether or not we're valuable or worthy, we are prone then to go manufacture value and worth wherever we can, which causes us to go out and do this and do this and accomplish this and achieve this so that others can see that we are valuable and worthy. You can, when I put it that way, you can see the problems with this right. approach to life, right? Yep. But for most threes, uh, we do this not really knowing that's what we're doing, right? And so what ends up happening is we end up saying yes to everything often not checking whether or not it's congruent with what we truly want or if it's the right choice. And so we often end up over committing and kind of, and, and sometimes committing to things that we aren't really prepared for. And we're, so we're kind of always, often scrambling inside, faking it till we make it right. and exhausting ourselves <laughs> in the process, right. which is not a good way to live a life. Right. Right. Well, so I'm remembering you telling the story about going to seminary, right? You're like, well, I guess that's the next thing, right? Like, like, yeah. like I'm going right. to go, I think that was part of it. I'm right? going to go achieve that because at least then I'll yeah. know what I'm doing. Right. Right. And I think that's a tendency, right? That's an example of the Enneagram helping us become more aware of our personalities, tendencies to try to get what we really want. Right. Right. What I really want, which is value and worth, is not bad. Right. Right. It's not a bad thing. Um, but uh, the way in which I go about getting it sometimes isn't best. Right. Right. The way my personality tries to kind of assuage or cope with mm -hmm. <laughs> the questioning or the lack of what I want isn't always best. So, in some, uh, it helps me see the ways in which my personality really helps me in life but it also sees the ways in which my personality sometimes hinders me in life. Right. Yeah. And I think that's true. So I'm a four and I'm like, okay. so it's basically on every personality thing, whatever is the most emotionally chaotic, that's me. So that's, okay. that's where I end up. <laughs> so four, but uh, yeah, but yeah, so I totally get it too, but it was a neogram that helped me realize that, oh, okay. Uh, you know, these are um, the sort of impulse to be like expressive is like yeah. something that I've always had to do, right? It's just something, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not oh, not always received well, particularly in corporate America. I'm looking at you, <laughs> that one bad manager whose name I won't say. But uh, but 
Yeah. And so, so it's not always, that stuff's not always accepted. Right. And so then you kind of try to shift your personality and at least I did, and that doesn't help. Doesn't help. Well, and it's also, I would argue it's not possible. You know, (laughs) I think this personality is kind of a baked in deal and we can argue over whether or not it's nature versus nurture. It's probably some combination of the two, but it's not, I can't just shed my personality. Right. Right. (laughs) And pick a new one. It's not how it works. What I, I think what the Enneagram can help us do, though, is help us be a healthier version of ourselves with this personality, right? And I think that's the goal. So the goal is not for you to be uh, stop being a four. It's not for me to stop being a three, right? But it's to be a healthy version in which all that's good and true and beautiful about our personalities are used in the right ways for the right reasons in, you know, from a more authentic place. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So you have written on this, you have, you have a, you, you coach and consult on this, right? And, uh, and then you're podcasting about, about Enneagram as well. So tell us about, about kind of those things and kind of where people can find it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the book is called, I think, and I think you mentioned it, the Enneagram of discernment. Yeah. So a lot of the work that I do is helping people make good and wise decisions. And I think the Enneagram has a lot to say about how our personality helps us and hinders us in our decision-making. And so I, I wrote a book about it. And so it goes into how the nine types tend to uh, approach for better or worse decision-making, especially more complex decisions. And, and provide some strategies and tools to help make good and wise decisions with your personality and maybe not in spite of it. Um, so that's available on Amazon or you just do a Google, Google search, you can find it. Um, and then uh, the, yeah, so the, the coaching kind of consulting and training work that I do, um, I have a growing kind of clientele that are really interested in learning how their personality uh, has impacts the way in which they work. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and, and so I, I do a lot of work in that space and that, um, that business is called type trail. And so it's type trail.co is the website. So people can find out more about that there. Uh, and then the podcast, yeah, it's called fathoms and Enneagram podcast. And so what we're doing with that is I have two co-hosts, Seth Abram and Seth Creekmore. So since they're both Seth, we go by Abram and Creek on the show. <laughs> And then Drew, you know, the non-Seth in the room. Um, and we really take, as the as the title indicates, a deeper look at the Enneagram. So there's tons of great kind of introductory podcasts on the Enneagram um, where, hey, we're going to interview this type or we're going to interview this type. Um, and all that's really, that felt like a crowded space. And so what we're trying to do is for those that are really into the Enneagram and, and want to know more about it other than what what their type is, then we're kind of the podcast for them. So we, we do some deep dives into a lot of the intricacies and more uh, kind of next level dynamics of the Enneagram beyond just the traits of the types and those sorts nice. of things. So, and that's on any of the podcast apps that you use, you can find it. Love it. And do I see this right? You recently had Annie F downs on the show. So yes, we that's did. Fantastic. We had Annie F downs on the show. That's nice, uh, which, man. Good job. Which was awesome. Yeah. And because she loves the Enneagram and ah. uh, she's uh, and the connection is she's friends with Seth Abram, one of the co-hosts because uh, okay. Nashville is a small town. Yeah. When, yeah. You, when you start to realize it. Um, 
and but she was gracious enough to come on the show and had a lot of fun and uh, Super even cool. made her cry. <laughs> good work. That's that's a good uh, interview right there. We didn't you can we make don't her ever cry. go out with you know trying to make people cry, but sometimes it happens, you know, because we're talking about really important stuff, right? Yes. What's going on internally? So right, I uh, love that. Okay, so friends, go check that out. Uh, the so you can can you find everything at typetrail.co books coaching uh, and the podcast. Where, where can you yes. get the podcast? So podcast, um, in, in, any of your podcast apps, you can go. Yes. Or on on Instagram, we we kind of keep up with stuff on Instagram at at fathoms.enneagram is the handle. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, guys, you're already in the app. Just flip over and look up Fathom. You will find it or search Fathom Enneagram. You'll probably, probably get it that way for yeah. sure. Love it. All right. Drew, thanks for sharing your story. I really do appreciate it. Once again, everybody can find you typetrail.com co co mm-hmm. and uh anything you want to leave us with well um i i think i'm gonna give you kind of one of my uh, i'm sure the people who know me well are tired of hearing me say this but if, if you're into the enneagram um kind of my mantra is type is the trailhead so once you discover what your personality type is that's uh. the beginning not the end and i think in, in today's kind of surge of popularity with the enneagram i think there's a lot of people it's really easy to stop once you learn your type and just say, okay, I, I know some things about myself. I can talk about it at social gatherings with others. And that's about it. When really, it's really the beginning of a deeper understanding of who you are and who others are. Um, and so uh, yeah. I would just leave that phrase with your audience that type is the trailhead. And and there's a long journey ahead that's really good. There you go, friends. There is a deeper journey, I believe, so passionately that that journey is one that the Lord is calling you to, to discover yourself. I call it finding yourself in Christ, uh, to be the person he's made you to be because he wants you to be like Jesus. He doesn't, you don't have to be Jesus. You have to be you in Christ. And Enneagram is one tool to help you figure that out. Drew, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Eric. Uh, It's been a joy. 